Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hello and welcome to episode 119. Today I'll conclude the interview with Robbie Stamp, the CEO of BIOS International, a global consultancy focused on helping clients manage complexity. He's a founding member of Azim Azar's Exponential Do community, where we met. Like me, he has submitted oral evidence to Britain's all-party parliamentary group on AI, and he enjoys thinking and talking about our deep evolutionary past and the technological future of Homo sapiens, or Homo techniensis, as he has described that future. He has given two TEDx talks, one on the concept of digital souls, and the other on the nature of human grief. In 1995, Robbie was a founder of The Digital Village with the late great Douglas Adams, author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and was an executive producer on the Disney movie of that in 2005. Last week, we ranged over a lot of territory, from what makes AI so revolutionary, to how much agency we have in a world of AI making decisions about our lives, to the sentience of Marvin the paranoid android. And in the rest of the interview, we'll get a lot more into Douglas Adams' perpendicular way of thinking, some quotes from hitchhikers will inevitably creep in, and how it affects our view of AI, as we also talk more about notions of empathy and creativity in AI. Here's Robbie Stamp. I think one of the things that sits at the heart of Douglas's work is an endless fascination with perspective. I think it sits in Hitchhikers, it certainly sits in Dirt Gently, it sits in his work, which he very often said was his favourite work, which was Last Chance to See, about endangered species, and his wonderful description of the rhinoceros with its phenomenally sensitive smell, its phenomenology is almost being through time with the degrading of certain kinds of smells. So it exists in a different phenomenological space because of the way in which it is parsing the smells in its environment through time, what's decaying, what's not decaying. Of course, that'd be true of a number of animals, but it's particularly true of rhinoceroses. So Douglas explores it there, the superintelligent shade of blue. What if there was a superintelligent shade of blue? I think Douglas was just a genius of asking that, what if? What if you looked at things this way? And I think that he didn't just once or twice. And that animism, very interesting actually to sit and talk with him about that phrase and it reminds me, I just wanted to go get this off my shelves as, just quickly. One of the most stimulating papers I've read in the last few years was a paper called Making Kin with the Machines. And it was written by somebody who has Samoan and Cherokee heritage, somebody who has Lakota heritage. And one of the interesting things about that epistemology, that way of seeing the world, is that there is a much wider acceptance of relational possibility in time and space with a much wider set of ontologies. So the acceptance of the fact that there are trees and birds and animals and plants and you are part of a much wider web of relationship, which brings about a little bit more humility on behalf of sapiens. And 
it's a fantastic paper and it really, really made me think and it led to starting to scratch the surface of thinking about some indigenous language structures like Blackfoot and things. It's a lovely quotation from a book called Blackfoot Physics about language and language structure. So this is from the book called Blackfoot Physics by David Peat, who's a quantum physicist who worked with the great David Bohm. It's in a chapter called Language About Language. To hear the Haida people speak is to listen to the sounds of waves on the shore and the cry of birds. Other languages carry the sounds of the winds, the sense of an overwhelming presence within the eastern woodlands, a dim memory of the slowly moving growl of a glacier from the last ice age, the sounds spoken to animals, the words whispered to the spirit world, the high-pitched sounds sung softly by the Blackfoot as they ride at night so as not to frighten animals in their passing. And I just absolutely love that, a dim memory of the slowly moving growl of a glacier from the last ice age. The thought that two human beings with the same voice boxes and things that we've got could be in time and space, and I could use that voice box to communicate the slowly moving growl of a glacier from the last ice age. And it's incredibly beautiful. And so this making kin with machines, the machines is what led me to thinking about other epistemologies, other ways of thinking about relationship in time and space. And Douglas used to tell this parable of a puddle. He used to describe this puddle that wakes up one morning and it looks around at the hole that it's in and it thinks to itself, this hole fits me very neatly. In fact, this hole that I'm in fits me so neatly, it must have been made especially for me. And the puddle continues to think that the hole that it's in was made especially for it as the sun comes up and the puddle evaporates. And I think that was Douglas's plea for a little more humility on behalf of sapiens and believing we're the apogee of cognition, perception, and intelligence. And I think herein lies a deep paradox, which we have to hold as a species, which is indeed an absolute celebration of who we are and what we are and what makes us unique and what makes us part of a things that we're able to do that other life forms don't and things that other life forms do that we don't. But there are things that we clearly are able to do, as far as we know at the moment, that other life forms can't. So how do we both celebrate our embodiment, not allow the discourse about what it is to be human to be subsumed by Silicon Valley reductionist thinking as a grand sweeping statement, but not to be subsumed by that at the same time as to get over ourselves <laughs> with that humility that Douglas, I think, reaches for and suggests all the time in his work, that deep paradox of celebration for us, particularly in our stewardship and getting over ourselves. And that humility, that radical humility, that creative humility, which actually that would bring in terms of so many of the problems the world faces today, whether it's climate change, whether it's litigating 2,000-year-old battles about territory and empire and state, to actually find the enormous release of energy and creative problem solving that comes from that form of humility and thinking about the way we sit in this infinitely beautiful, astonishing web of relationship in time and space. The beauty of this current agglomeration of atoms and physics and electrical impulses and biological processes these two people sitting here in this moment in time and space on August the 22nd, 2022, 
a unique experience for us, laying down new pathways in our brains as we've done so. Our brains would have, even as we've been talking, gone to all sorts of things, some of which we've briefly articulated to ourselves, some which we haven't. How beautiful that is, how precious that is, and the humility that comes and the excitement that comes with that humility. I registered in the lockdown homohumilis.com as a domain in parche Harare. We're not homo deus and let us never be homo deus. But if we find this humility, this creative humility about where we sit, which was, I think, Douglas's greatest contribution wrapped up in all the beautiful humour and fun and wit and satire and energy and irony, if we find that maybe future generations will dub us not homo deus, but homo humilis. Forgive me, but the the line, I think this is getting needlessly messianic, (laughs) just (laughs) popped right into my mind. But his work, as you say, kept prodding us to say, get over yourself. It presented this galaxy where we weren't special, where in fact, most of the rest of it understood rules that we were unaware of, where there wasn't anything that was a top of the pecking order. And when something tried to do that, then by asking for the answer to life, the universe and everything, it was taken down a peg by saying, well, you can't understand that because you don't know what the question is. And I would so love to talk to Douglas, obviously, about that. And you may be the person on the planet that's most able to channel his thoughts in that respect, that as humorous as it was, as funny a trope as it was, there is a deep truth in that, which I don't think we could explore completely, that we do a lot of looking for answers, but we don't understand the questions, and that we actually are going to hit that point, if not already, with AI, in that anything, in some ways, it will arrive relatively soon at a point where it is doing things we are not capable of understanding. And I don't mean that in an artificial superintelligence kind of way necessarily, just an expansion of the ability of computers to compute so many things, but this will encroach your overlap on cognition in various ways that we already have the explainability problem. I don't know why more people don't connect it with deep thought, but you have networks making value judgments And the only correct answer to why did you make that decision is, well, these million weights in my network were balanced to give that answer. So tough luck if you can't understand that. And so there's here's this intersection of philosophy, AI, and Douglas Adams coming to the forefront right now. And what do you think he would say about assertions that AI was becoming sentient, for instance, or the just the general direction of this explosion of philosophy with respect to AI now. Gosh, I can't purport to speak for Douglas, and there are plenty of, again, far better minds than mine who knew Douglas as well as I did. I think he'd be exploring these questions because you can see them there in the work. You can see he is in the work exploring those what-ifs, those shifts in perspective. The world looks like this through human cognitive, phenomenological, social, political, anthropological ways of thinking, which have evolved through billions of years or more recently in terms of sapiens, hundreds of thousands of years, etc. So I think he would have been wryly, deeply concerned with these kinds of issues. That great, how do you explain to the Amazon what it'll be like when you hit the sea? 
Well, you can't explain it except river rules will no longer apply, which again is just a brilliant. I, mean, I think he talked about a bunch of other rivers as well, but that river rules will no longer apply is kind of all you can say about it to a river that has experienced banks and trees and sandbanks. And suddenly that's what's happening. And I think it was that intellectual willingness to have that humility and there both that humility about where sapiens sit, but that deep intellectual curiosity about other forms of perspective. So I think he'd be worrying away, thinking away, and then being humorous as well about these, you know, not one of my fortes, about these challenges. And I think that when he explores the relationships that characters have with deep thought, as you say, the questioning, I mean, the number 42, Paul Douglas, he always just says it was a joke, but just a number that sounded right. He liked the sound of it, but it has become this stand-in. And as you say, it's, well, if you ask the wrong question, then you get again an answer like 42. And so he was thinking about that. So I think he would be deeply engaged, but I think you can see there deeply embedded in his work was this endless fascination with other perspectives. And I think a a horror of what happens when people are certain and say they're certain about things. I had an interesting experience a few years ago. I was asked by a radio producer, Radio 4 producer here in BBC to be part of a series which was going to be in conversation with the archive of a dead person. And Derek Jarman, the filmmaker, Malcolm X, I think, and Douglas and the family said they didn't want to do it, but if I did, then I had their blessing. So this guy rocks up with about 80 hours of audio interviews that Douglas had done in various stages, sort of grouped into different groupings. And we have a pre-chat about what I wanted to talk about. And I said, well, I don't feel I can talk about the origins of Hitchhikers because I didn't know Douglas then. I don't feel I can talk about that with any degree of authenticity. But I would like to talk about perspective. And I had this very interesting moment where so that the cans go on, the headphones go on, and I'm having a conversation. And I he's suddenly in my head, the voice is in my head, Douglas's voice is in my head. And there's a bit where I'm talking to him about certainty and three books I'd read in a row, Vasily Grossman's Life and Fate, still one of the greatest novels I've ever read about the Soviet Union in the first half of the 20th century, a book called The Orphan Master's Son about North Korea, and a book called The Kindly Ones by Jonathan Littell about a fictional SS officer with the Einsatzgruppe of the death squads that followed up the Wehrmacht in Ukraine, in fact. They were all brilliant books and they were all in ways exploring totalitarianism. And one of the things that they're exploring is the absolutely evil that men and women do when they are absolutely certain that they are right and you are wrong. And the instrumentation of the other when you get into that space. And I was sharing this and the guy played back something which Douglas had talked about, about perspective. And I felt this strange embodied moment of connection. It felt because I hadn't read those books while he was alive. I was sharing them with him now. So that's kind of a loop back to the strangeness of relationship. Now, imagine that actually was not just Douglas in recording, but a pretty decent AI, which is working with Douglas and his speech patterns and going and starting to have a chat with me, what that might have felt like in terms of my human embodied response. But that certainty. So I think Douglas was deeply wary of anybody who believed that they certainly and absolutely knew the way things were. So that's why he was deeply suspicious of big, organised, monotheistic religions. That certainty that that brings. 
So at one hand, he had that horror he saw, and then the intellectual fascination with perspective. So I think he would be deeply engaged in the evolution, the rapid evolution of the relationship between us and the way in which AI and data is now manifest in the world. Well, I was thinking about, again, it comes back to agency and what happens when that doing. So when we talked about it does things we can't, the famous example of AlphaGo. So it comes back to Move 37 in AlphaGo, where you've got something happening and watching that rather good documentary where the humans watching it, somebody almost steps back and goes, what was that? And it had seen a move that humans hadn't made before. And in that sense, what it then did was it acted in the world. It didn't move the piece. Somebody moved the piece for it, but it might as well have had an arm which moved it. So it took its data processing, its insight in its sensory motors, and it acted in the world. So that boundary between it being able to do things and explicability and explainability, it really matters if in a very high-risk environment, it does something that we couldn't do. It's seen a pattern that we couldn't see, and it does it without a human in the loop. And so I think it's really important to place that boundary space, to be aware in governance terms of that boundary, and when we're crossing it, when we've given it a form of agency. So if it's insights, but let's imagine it's a quite a good thought experiment. Let's take a really intractable problem like Middle East problems, Palestine and Israel and so on. So for people who kind of go, these things will become more intelligent than us and super intelligent. Let's imagine as a thought experiment, an AI, a deep thought, which comes up with a solution. That's probably a pretty long deck. There's probably quite a lot of slides. And in the room, you've got the Israelis and you've got the Palestinians and you've got the Chinese and you've got the Lebanese and you've got the Syrians, you've got the Russians, you've got the Brits, you've got the Americans. And what then has to happen with this big 500 slide deck is every single one of those humans has got to go, yes, boss, that's what we will now go and do. We will go and follow your instructions to the letter. And then one of them gets out and there's a moment where some leader was going to be assassinated by a drone but actually they didn't get in the car because their little girl fell down and broke their leg and they take them to hospital. So that human then has to go back to deep thought, the boss, and go, little girl, broken leg, couldn't get to the body. Ah, in that eventuality, this is what I want you to do. And you start to get, I think, into an absurdity when you start to think about what it really means for AI to be part of these enormously messy, contradictory human complex systems. And so these boundaries are what it means to take a decision, make a decision, act on a decision, what is causal. Those are the things we should be worrying about. And in that example, the problem is not coming up with whatever the quote unquote best solution is. It's getting people to trust yeah. it. Right. You would never get people around that table to say, we will all agree that whatever the AI comes up with, we'll abide by its decision. Well, that's right. Exactly. So the idea of us just then being the biological instruments, carrier around of instruction in this perfect world. Mm. As soon as you go there, you just go, clearly, that's just a nonsense. So you then really have to right. make very big leaps about slavery. And then you are into the realms of science fiction. And that's why we go there. But when you really properly explore the realities around relationship in complex, messy, adaptive systems, you see it will do things which we can't, absolutely. But it's these edge spaces and these boundaries in messy environments that we need to be dealing with in an understanding, a deep understanding of local context. Well, we could define the problem as being 
the protagonists in this conflict have to agree to this solution, whatever it is. And so the 500-slide deck is one that's crafted to be something that is found to be acceptable by all sides, even if it's suboptimal in other ways. It doesn't go anywhere unless people act on it. So now if you frame the problem as it's got to work with the psychology of these people and nationalities, say, that actually sounds like a solvable problem. Yeah, I think there are two parts to the thought experiment, really, aren't there? There's the one which is, here's my 500-slide deck. And now biological human beings, please go out and carry out those instructions. And everybody's, as you say, for the sake of the thought experiment, it's done it brilliantly. It's understood the individual pathologies, the psychology. It's reached a consensus space where grudgingly, and it would be grudgingly, the human actors go, okay, that's what we'll do. But then things go wrong. The contingencies, the accident, the bird that flies down a chimney and startles somebody so they have a fit and don't go to the meeting that they needed to go to in order to do that. All the messiness of as things unfold. At that stage, what each human actor then needs to do is come back and go, well, in the event of the bird down the chimney moment, which meant that my wife is terrified of birds, I needed to take to hospital, so I missed that crucial meeting. What happens next? What do we do in that stage? And then the AI has got, oh, yes, bird down the chimney, wife is very frightened of birds, I have exactly the answer for that. And that's where I think it starts to get absurd. But you're right to push at this. This is why thought experiments are fun. And to say, well, yeah, it's not inconceivable. You remind me of a, I try and remember what it's called. I think it's something called unanimous AI, which has done some very, I think, interesting work in terms of consensus building based on waggle dancers and bees. The critical thing is it's in the moment where you get to understand what a group can live with by understanding the strength of feeling in other spaces. And I think the whole nature of how we get better at deliberating in the face of complexity is a huge, huge challenge. And indeed, it's one of the things I'm hoping to try and do with my fellowship at Cambridge is help to start up something called the Cambridge Centre for the Future of Deliberative Space, which is how do we get better Mm -hmm. at deliberating together in the face of complexity? It's a good question. That's why I like thought experiments, because they're fun. Good reference there. That's Lewis Rosenberg's Hybrid Swarm Intelligence. Yes, right. They have it unu.ai. If I could move towards a perhaps terminal topic here, that you created the term homo techniensis, uh-huh. yep. which sounds like uh, humans are in the process of becoming one with technology. Can you define this evolutionary step oh, for us? Well, I mean, we've been talking a lot so far as if there's humans and there's tech, and then there's the Venn diagram around action. But of course, we need to put another circle in there, (laughs) which is what happens with various forms of augmentation. It's what happens when certain forms of cast line CRISPR technology, certain forms of chip augmentation, et cetera. At what stage do you cease to be biological substrate evolved sapiens and become techniensis? I think the answer is probably 42%, 42%. That's just that's a, all the arbitrary <laughs> nonsense answer. Again, it's rather like Theseus's ship completely rebuilt from every timber, every nail. When did it cease to be the original thing? How did it evolve? So that you're quite right. It's a really interesting space to go to, which is what does that look like? And you've got the transhumanists on one end. You've got all of that. I find slightly difficult given some of the pressing issues we have right now 
in the world to be leading with. You've got the furore around long-termism at the moment as well, some of the thinking around that. And I think it has the capacity for driving some very hideous inequalities because who is going to get access to these augmentations? And so the capacity to reinforce existing structural inequalities and injustices grows and grows and grows. But yes, unquestionably, David Eagleman's book hints at that, though he's not a transhumanist. I mean, he's a neuroscientist and a fabulous one. That His books are incredibly accessible and brilliant to read. But we were talking earlier about new forms of peripheral device, new forms of sensory motor, which allow us to do things which our biologically evolved selves can't do. And I wear every day on my face a pair of glasses what would be natural for me now would be not to be able to see very well at a distance but nobody sees me wearing glasses as a moral issue but they are an augmentation technology they allow me they augment me and allow me to function i couldn't drive safely without them and i don't think anybody would see me now having contact lenses as a moral issue. And I think probably relatively few people, and maybe some, were I to have laser eye surgery or new lenses implanted as a moral issue. If we got to a stage where the gene could be fixed in vitro, I think we'd be crossing a boundary where some people would go, whoa, 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 hang on a second. That does feel like a boundary, but I'm not sure. But again, that's the point about governance and boundaries and emergence. So what are the moralities around those enhancement technologies? Who has access to them? Who are they being tested on? Let's imagine that your Silicon Valley billionaire Maybe they want to be brave and test something really outrageous first up. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll find some other people. We already have very sad things that happen in the world in terms of organs and organ transplants and things. So I'm afraid, you know, some of the darker aspects of humanity and some of the darker, you know, the needs and the desires for immortality and long lives and extending lifespan and things, we get into some very, very murky waters. We are perhaps shifting that Overton window of our viewpoint on augmentation, I don't think anyone would object to you using a smartphone to look things up because everyone's doing it. If that were implemented as a cortical implant that gave you a cellular direct connection between your brain waves and the cloud, there would probably be some people who did. And yet it just amounts to doing the same thing faster and less visibly. Yes. And again, if we stay with the thought that that is actually possible, that the people for whom that is going to be real to start with, if it is real, will be a very, very, very small subsection of a very elite group. But on the other hand, there are all sorts of amazing medical things that are happening with augmentation, which spinal cord injuries, which blocked in syndrome, which are allowing people to communicate. A lot of this stuff is absolutely wonderful. And again, that augmentation you'd absolutely want to say, bring it on, bring it on completely. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's very difficult to be absolutist in these spaces, except around a few things for me, around things like accountability and pain, where I suppose I'm relatively absolutist on those things (laughs) at this stage. But this augmentation space, it is going to get complex. And let's look at another augmentation. Let's look at things like persistence of digital selves. So what happens when... There are forms of grief bots. We have them already. We already have. I was having a conversation with somebody about grief bots and they were going, a horrendous idea. It's terrible. And I was saying, well, if it brings solace to somebody who is grieving, 
And there's plenty of evidence that it does, not for everybody, but for some people to be able to type and get some response and say, how was your day? And you say, is it really difficult? And I really miss you and so on. And you find solace in that. Would you want to be, I said, so you're the government minister, you've got the ultimate responsibility. You're going to pass legislation which denies that solace. They should be talking to neighbours and I get that, but Supposing somebody isn't. Can you define the grief bot in this respect? Yeah. Let's imagine a situation where, and I think there was a, an early case several years ago now, where somebody, a friend, had died in a car crash and she took, they were part of a group of hackers and programmers, and she took a lot of the text messages that he'd ever sent her mm. and a bunch of other people volunteered theirs. And out of it emerged a some form of natural language parsing, which meant she could come home at the end of the day and say, hi, I can't remember his name, whatever his name was. Hi, Igor, how's your day? And Igor would use a phrase which say, hey, I've just been chilling. How's your day been, Toots? Mm. And actually, I read those logs. And I remember when I first read those logs, it was very touching because you could feel that there was something going on. There was a relationship here mm. and it was providing something. It couldn't be everything. It wasn't going to be able to hug. But that, of course, you don't have now. Let's push this forward 5, 10, 15 years where it's not just text. It's the same technology that creates deep fake videos. It's let's have a chat with Grandpa Robbie. Yeah, we don't want the old wrinkly Grandpa Robbie. Let's have him when he was 55 and we'll have a chat with him. My voice is there. There's recordings on me there. And there's a simulacrum of a conversation. And so you could feel ourselves being surrounded, for those who choose it, by millions of digital ancestors. Your timing is perfect because two episodes ago, we had Justin Harrison on who has founded a company called MyYOV around starting out with creating exactly what you just described for his mother. So I'm glad we got that clarified because initially I was making a connection with something called Wobot, which is a therapeutic discussion app. So it's not about recreating the persona of someone through training it on their conversations. I'm glad we got that clarified. Which actually this is quite a good link back. So let's imagine mm -hmm. a situation where somebody comes back 10, 15 years, and it comes back to a pretty decent AI, an Android or something on a screen in 3D, which they've chosen to make a squid or a cat or however they, and it says to you, there's nobody else at home. It says, Peter, how was your day? And you go, oh, it was a really difficult day today. So he says, what? Yeah, I sort of went to the publishers again and I'm having a difficulty with the editor. And he says, look, mate, go and pour yourself a glass of wine, get a cup of tea, come a cup of tea, come back and tell me all about it. Because you know what? I like this manuscript. I think I know how much work you've done on it. Hey, I've, I've been involved in a lot of the revisions. Go and get a glass of wine, come tell me about it. And your body starts to secrete the hormones you would if you were being empathized with. So here's the question. Are you being empathized with? Is it being empathetic? And does the distinction matter? Now, I run these thought experiment webinars where I ask people to use a word to think, yes, you can use that to describe how AI is manifest. Maybe, maybe not. And you really shouldn't. Empathy is one in the middle. Most of the groups come to the conclusion that you are being empathized with, but it is not being empathetic. One of my closest friends, or a very close friend, a dear friend, who helped to found this, he says, well, I'm on the spectrum, and I don't really feel empathy, but I've taught myself to spot the social signals when empathy is expected of me, and then I do the cup of tea and the chat and the arm around the... So am I being inauthentic? Does that mean I am not being authentically 
empathetic. Uh, always causes people to just pause a little bit between something that they thought they were sure of. Mm. And we're going to add in another thing. So supposing this Android, you've been wearing a next generation, super duper, next XXXX generation watch sensor system. And it now also knows your cortisol levels, your serotonin levels, your oxytocin levels, your testosterone levels. It's tracked things which already these things do, heart monitors, stress rates, etc. It knows that if you're under pressure, you do three quick gestures over your hair or there's a set of your mouth. So you've got the tells and it knows about you. So now from an epistemological point of view, it starts to have a knowing of you that you yourself probably don't have, even those you love you don't have. So it is able to start thinking about appropriate responses in context of a kind which humans couldn't do. Now, imagine you come home and moan to a partner three, four days in a row about how bad your day's been. And come Friday night, you do it again. And your partner goes, well, would you like to hear about my week? Because I had a very bad meeting on Wednesday. But, you know, you don't know about it because you didn't ask because you've just come home every day and you unloaded on me and you have that argument. Now, imagine the thing. The thing could do the same thing. It could say, Robbie, look, We've had this same conversation for four days in a row. I gave you some advice. Why didn't you take it using that tone of voice with me? And I kind of feel a little bit chastened. So it could go, okay, four nights in a row, had this thing, no response, reach for something which is a little bit of tough love. So you could imagine a grief bot, which is why I kind of think we can link this back, acting with some of these levels of sophistication to, and you can absolutely see how and why we will be in relationship with these things. And there's no point people just saying you mustn't anthropomorphize them. They're only maths. They're only lookup tables because we already are and we will be. Some people will choose not to be, but lots of people will be in relationships. So then who owns the data? Where is the data going in this relationship? How's that being data chartered? What is this private company? If I choose to rescind all this data and take it out of the system, who owns the data about my mother, the pictures, the poems, the letters, the interviews I've done, all those kinds of issues come to the fore as we start to manage these relationships between these different manifestations of data and AI in our world. And as you say, it's already happening. I can provoke the same kind of discussion, debate, and angst by playing people a piece of music that I can then ask, what was your reaction to that? And they say, well, it was beautiful, the violin. I just, I felt all these emotions. And I say, that was written by an AI. And they will often get upset because it did not feel what they felt that a human would have to go through to compose that. Yeah, I think, again, it's, I remember doing that with my wife and saying, you listen to these music, two rather beautiful pieces of choral music, and then saying one of them was, does that change your relationship? In that moment, you had an embodied sense of beauty and the evocation of a range of memories. So now you feel cheated. Why? And do you feel because one thing never walked in the rain, never sat there and felt tingly all over with a sunset or, as I say, the pain of unrequited love or whatever it was. It never went through those beautiful moments and those hard yards that I've been through. So when I respond to mm. something, but there'll be other people, no, I had an embodied experience, I had an embodied reaction. It was beautiful. That's enough for me. That's fine. That's I don't need it 
to have done those things. I have my embodied reaction, my embodied response, and that has an absolute validity to it. And that's fine. That's fine. I'm happy. I feel that somewhere here, Douglas would be saying, you know what, some of these things that you're doing that you feel are transcendent, communing with higher spirits may not be as special as you thought. We could get a doorknob to do it, and that's all right. And like, just get over it and be happy with living with that. Yes, and that's the point about perspective, isn't it? That's what he was consistent in a way asking you to do, which is that mm. paradox between knowing him as an individual. He loved his human embodied experiences. You know, he was enormously good company. He liked his food and he liked his wine and margaritas. And we would spend weekends, as you can probably have guessed, I mean, I can talk for Britain and he could talk for Britain and just amazing weekends sharing, talking, sharing ideas, drinking champagne and margarita. And he would have reveled in all of those things and he would have celebrated them. But he might have seen that they are one form of experience in the universe and they're special and they bring joy, but they are by no means the only possible one that if one starts to imagine becomes possible. Mm. And so what are those other manifestations, those other ontologies that are growing around us with whom we're in relationship. And in the raw political side, whose power structures do they serve? Whose existing power structures are reinforced? Um, what does it mean for us to be manifest in data space? And the one thing that is absolutely certain is it is not a comfortable digital twin. There is something wholly new philosophically and ontologically going on. You, right now, you and I are held in ones and zeros on servers with a whole set of so-called epistemes and knowings. We know not, we haven't got a clue where they are, what they're doing, the ethics of the inferences that are created about us. Sometimes they're spot on. Netflix says, you'll like this. And I go, yes, I like that. Thank you very much. Fantastic. And other times the episteme may be built on some very shaky ground indeed, like that young woman we talked right at the top of the thing with endometriosis, whose pet medication was supposed to be a knowing of her. So what does it mean for us to be manifest in data space? And it's not a comfortable digital twin. We are scattered to the four digital winds, to the north, the south, and the east and the west, consistently being combined, recombined, reconfigured. At one end, the Shoshana Zuboff surveillance capitalism, we're all financial derivative products. But there are other important things going on philosophically as well. And those boundaries are getting blurrier and blurrier. I'd say perfect place to wrap this up. It's been a fantastic conversation. We must do it again sometime and let's rope some more people in. So speaking of which, what would you like to tell people about how to stay up with what you're doing, with what communities you're involved with are doing that you would like to promote or anything else? The floor is yours. Well, it's very kind of, gosh, I'm really, really poor on this. Just find me at LinkedIn. I'm Robbie Stamp at LinkedIn. I do respond quickly there to anybody interesting who pings me. I don't tweet a lot, I have to admit. I follow lots of interesting people, particularly actually people like Tim Nickgebru and Margaret Mitchell and things, the women who are leading the resistance to some of the deprivation. And of course, we met on Azim Azar's platform. And as I said, I love Exponential View. I'm a huge fan of Exponential View, the newsletter, and I very proudly help to facilitate a channel thinking about human embodiment and some of these questions there for members there. I do plan actually to start a podcast, which I think I probably will call The Puddle, <laughs> which explores some of these issues. And I might, maybe saying this now, will actually get me to do it. Very embodied thing, very nice thing to finish up with. At the beginning of lockdown, 
I, for my mum, when was I going to see my mum again? My mum's in her early 80s. She still works full time. She's a very formidable woman. But when was I going to see her? And I decided I would start reading her a poem every single day into my iPhone, send it to her as a file, and she could listen to it whenever she liked. And I did that for about 250 days. And then I read her a chapter of Wind in the Willows, a particularly favourite chapter of mine about the piper at the gates of dawn when the little otter goes missing and is found nestled in the paws of the of the great gold pan. She liked that. So I read her the whole of the Wind in the Willows. The irony not lost on either of us. I read a Winnie the Pooh. I read her a Moomin book. And then I was reading her T.H. White's Once and Future King. And I could tell she wasn't really enjoying it. My mum's very loyal, but I know her obviously well enough to know with the text that I'm getting back, it's not really her thing. So on Christmas Eve, I'd given up halfway through an extraordinarily long and dull chapter about a joust. So on Christmas morning, I sat to read and I thought, I can't inflate this on her. I know what I'll do. I'll read one of my favourite chapters from War and Peace, which is the Troika race across the snow when the Rostov children go dressed up as mummers. So I read her that. She loved it. Boxing Day, I look it up, there are 361 chapters in War and Peace. Well, that's a year's project. So I read the whole War and Peace, a chapter a day, send it by phone. And I've been thinking, actually, that might just be my embodied way in. The year of reading War and Peace to my mother would be a great thing to sort of offer a chapter a day with all the mistakes and the planes going overhead and it's not professionally done, but a deeply embodied human thing to do. So keep an eye out for the year of reading War and Peace to my mother. <laughs> that might be something which, oh. having said that publicly, maybe I really need to get my act together. Right now I'm reading a middle march. We went Little Dorrit and Dickens, and right now I'm reading a middle march. So I've not read today for two years. Well, you heard it here first, <laughs> folks. At least you weren't reading her Vogon poetry no. <laughs> or no Vogon poetry. Nancy Millstone Jennings poetry. No, no, no. <laughs> No, that would not have been a kindness. <laughs> that would have been the worst. Have been Robbie Stamp, thanks for coming on the show. It's been an extreme pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed myself hugely. Thank you very much indeed. That's the end of the interview. Lots to chew on there. I'm still thinking about this possibility that while having AI solve our most pressing problems would be useless because we would never accept the direction of an AI no matter how provably right it was, what if the actual task we give it is in coming up with a way to socialize its answers such that they gain sufficient acceptance to be implemented? Of course, you can take that all the way to brainwashing if you want, but given that people are already using AI and psychometrics to adversely influence populations for private gain and negative social effects, I think it's about time we understood how to deal with the same dynamics to prevent those adverse effects. In today's news ripped from the headlines about AI, researchers have used deep reinforcement learning to train micro-robots how to swim. Today I learned that micro-swimming is a thing, mainly for fantastic voyage-type robots to navigate around our bodies. Apparently until now they'd only been able to make relatively simple motions. The study, published in Communications Physics, showed how they taught a little robot, which had just three tiny particles joined by flexible links, to wiggle along desired paths. Reinforcement learning uses a reward function to train a network to produce outcomes that maximize the reward, in this case for developing swimming skills. Alan Tsang, assistant professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Hong Kong, said, it does so without relying on human knowledge, but only on a machine learning algorithm. Next week, my guest will be Paul Newman, the founder of Oxbotica, 
a UK-based creator of software for autonomous vehicles, working on deployments of last-mile delivery services, autonomous mining vehicles, and level 4 shuttles, among other things. I've been wanting to do an interview on this for a long time. You won't want to miss that next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Artificial Intelligence and You and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.